Well, it is an exciting day to be together. As Josh mentioned, there's a lot of new things here at Grace, a lot of things that have been in the works for a number of months and even years that we get to celebrate together today. And he mentioned the service tonight, which will be a blessing. I hope you can be with us for that. And also, we're starting this morning a new preaching series in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we have new service time, new preaching series, service tonight, lots of exciting things happening. And all of these things have been made possible not by any effort of ours. This is not the result of our elders, of our congregation, of our wisdom, or our strength. Everything comes to us by the grace of God. This is why we are Grace Bible Church because we rely and depend upon the grace of God to carry us, to supply what we need, and we are a thankful people because God has been so good to us. And so I just want to encourage you as we observe all of these blessings from the Lord, give him thanks and give him praise for what he has done. He is a good and faithful God to us. Well, this morning, like I said, we're going to start the Gospel of Matthew. And last year... About a year ago exactly, actually, we started a preaching series through the last three books of the Old Testament. So we did Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We ended Malachi in May of last year. And so now what we're doing is we're turning the page, literally and figuratively, as we go from the Old Testament and its end to the New Testament and its beginning. However, before we jump into the Gospel of Matthew... And we see the birth of Christ and his ministry, his betrayal, his death, his resurrection, his commission, all these things. Before we get to that, I need to set the context for us. I do not want us to just drop into the book of Matthew assuming that all of us understand the significance in, in world history, in redemptive history of the Messiah coming. So even though we are starting the Gospel of Matthew today, we're actually not going to be in Matthew at all. And I know that's going to frustrate some of you. <laughs> this is not bait and switch. I promise we'll get there. But I have this conviction as, that as a church, I want us to understand the storyline of the Bible, the overarching purpose of God from beginning to end. And I don't use the word story as in myth or fable. Some people refer to the Bible as a story because they do not believe it's true. We believe that the Bible is true. So when I say storyline of Scripture, what I'm referring to is the narrative, the, the articulation of all that God has done from beginning to end. And if we don't understand what has happened from creation to the end of Malachi, and the intertestamental period that we're going to talk about, Jesus coming will seem like, well, yeah, this is what happens next in the Bible. What's the big deal? But I don't want the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into the world to be a small thing in your mind. This is not just what's on the next page of your Bible. This has eternal significance. It's not just the end of December when we start thinking about Christmas and babies and mangers and lights and everything else, but the coming of Christ into the world is something that absolutely changed the world. So what I'm going to do this morning 
is we're going to fly over the history of redemption. And I wrote some of the terms on the back of your Bible that I'm going to be using today, just so, or the back of your bulletin, so that you can be familiar with what some of these things mean. You can check those definitions out there. But my job this morning is to take the history of redemption, and I want to make a few stops along the way and show you the significance of the coming of Christ, so that when we get to Matthew's gospel, we go, praise God. Praise God that he has been faithful to his word, that everything he promised is coming true in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I don't want us to be ignorant of this. So that's my plan this morning. We are going to overview. Uh, Fred, you told me that it says in the bulletin, my sermon text is Genesis 1-1 to Malachi 4-6. <laughs> That's true, but we're not going to read the whole thing. We just wouldn't have time. Uh, so actually what I'm going to do, and you can turn here, just listen, I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 4, and then we're going to pray, and we will get into our task for this morning. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4, Paul says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. Let's pray. Father, we have a huge task in front of us this morning. And I pray for help as I try to communicate the wonder, the intricacy, the detail of your plan to redeem your people. And Father, we want to understand your word. We want to understand how it fits together how everything that happens in the New Testament has been told of in the Old Testament. We want to link these things together so that you receive maximum glory, maximum praise because of your faithfulness to your people. So Father, this morning we come as a needy and hungry people and just like Luke prayed, Lord, satisfy us with your word. Give us everything we need to live lives that are obedient to you, faithful to you, honoring to you, because you have put your spirit in us. So God, now as we look to your word, be faithful as you always have been. Open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the wonderful things that are in your word, and in everything we say and do, may Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name that I pray now. Amen. Amen. Well, maybe you have wondered before, as you've read Galatians or heard that passage that I just read, what does it mean that the Son of God <clears throat> was sent, <clears throat> excuse me, in the fullness of time? What, is, what does that phrase mean, in the fullness of time? Well, that's my job today. That's my task, is to show us what that means. When Paul says the time was right, that's what that means, the fullness of time had come, what does he mean? And so what we're going to do is we're going to survey 
redemptive history. We're going to start in Genesis 1, and we're going to go all the way through the Old Testament, and I'm going to make four stops along the way. I'm going to make four stops and show us four things that the people of God needed, four things that the coming of the Messiah would fulfill, okay? So we're going to make four stops, we're going to see four things, so let's start where every good story starts, and that is at the beginning, the very first verse of the Bible, we could probably all say it together, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the opening of redemptive history. We read in the opening chapters of Genesis that God, of his own free and sovereign will, created everything in the universe, in the heavens and the earth, in the sea, on the dry land, everything, plants, animals, vegetation, wildlife, sea creatures, God created everything. And he created man in his image from the dust of the ground. And he creates woman as a helper, a perfect helpmate for the man. And he gives the man and woman a mandate, a command that they would fill the earth with image bearers, offspring, children, and their task as they produce offspring, as they fill the earth with image bearers, is to subdue the creation, to exercise a God-given dominion over it, to care for what God had created. And they work in the garden to preserve and care for all that God had given them. But it doesn't take long until paradise is lost. We read in the second and the third chapters of Genesis, that both Adam and Eve sin, they fall. Sin enters the world as Adam abandons his post, he fails to lead and protect his wife, and Eve sins by leaving the good God-given design for her and steps outside of that and listens to the lies of the devil, the serpent. And as Paul would tell us later, death entered the world through sin. So all of this creation that God had just pronounced very good is subjected to futility and death. The creation that was designed to be ruled and cared for by Adam and Eve was now lost. But this is where we read the first promise of the gospel. And I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. First book of the Bible, right on the very left side, Genesis chapter 3. There is a promise that God gives that one day the offspring of the woman, that is someone in her line, her descendant, someone connected to her, would come and reverse the curse. There is someone who would come and deal with the problem of sin. So God comes to Adam and Eve after they've fallen, and he tells them what the consequence of their action is. So we're going to pick up in verse 14. Read with me, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, this is the devil, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, 
and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So the need here, what God's people need is a savior. Someone who can take the effect of this initial sin, which spreads to all creation, by the way, and can save people from the power and the penalty of sin. And from this point on in redemptive history, every time a figure rises, a leader rises, the people of God say, is this the one? Is this the one who is going to finally and decisively deal with this problem of sin? And so on we move through the history of redemption, watching God's people eagerly wait for the redemption that was promised here in Genesis 3. The next stop we're going to make is in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Flip ahead four books, you'll get to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now the people have just been freed from slavery in Egypt. And God's people, known as the nation of Israel, have just experienced the power and the care of God as he frees them from slavery. He provides a way for them to escape through the Red Sea. And now God is establishing this is how you are to live together. This is how you are to relate to one another. He gives them the law. He gives them instruction. He gives them counsel and guidance for how they are to live before him. And as Moses is giving instruction to the people, just as God commanded him to, we read this magnificent promise in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So look with me at verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. This is God speaking to Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, that is like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. This is the second of the four things that God's people need. They need a savior, someone to rescue them from the power of sin, and they need a prophet. They need someone who will speak the word of God to them. Someone who will say, thus saith the Lord, don't do this, or do this. They need someone greater than Moses who would stand in that office and speak the word of God to the people. Now, again, as the history moves forward, the nation of Israel is wondering, who is going to be this prophet like Moses? Would it be Joshua? 
I mean, he was a pretty great guy, right? He leads the people into the promised land. He defeats a lot of the Canaanites and the people that are in the land that God has given to them. He fears God. He's trained by Moses for the goodness sakes. Who else could it be? But Joshua's not the one. He's not the one to ultimately save the people or be the greater prophet that they need. How about Gideon? Gideon feared God. He obeyed God. He led the people in victory. Could it be him or Jephthah or any of the judges? But each time the hero or the leader arises from God's people, they fail. They fail to do exactly what they needed to do. And so the desire, the anticipation for a greater prophet, for a greater savior grows with the people of God. Now we fast forward to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The people of God understand that they need a savior. They need someone to protect them, someone to watch over them, and they ask God to give them a human king so they can be like all the other nations around them. Do you remember this account? from? This is earlier in Samuel. They ask God, give us a king because they see how the nations around them are acting. They see that the king of the foreign people protects them. He fights wars for them. He, he gives defense to them and he does what they want him to do. But they don't understand what they're asking for when they ask for a king because the acceptance of a human king means the rejection of the divine king. Okay? So when they go to God and they say, give us a human king, what they are saying is, we don't think you can do everything that needs to be done. Give us a king so that we can be governed and protected and ruled like everybody else. So God answers their prayer. And he gives them Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel, and he inaugurates the age of the kings. And for a while, things go great. But Saul, like every other leader in Israel's history, fails to do what he should have done. He doesn't honor God. And so God removes the kingdom from him and gives it to David, the son of Jesse. Now we're going to see why David being the son of Jesse is so significant next week when we actually get into the book of Matthew and look at Jesus' family tree, his genealogy, his lineage. But for now, I want you to look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I'm going to show you the need that comes out of this text. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 11. This is God speaking to David, and here's what he says. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you. Now hang on. Remember that word offspring from Genesis chapter 3? Make the connection. Keep, keep that in mind. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The third thing that the people of God need is a righteous king. Someone who would establish a kingdom that would not just rise and fall, rise and fall, but someone who would establish an eternal kingdom that would never fail, 
And God promises that someone from David's line, that is, one of his descendants, would be the one to establish this kind of kingdom. If you drop your eyes down just a few verses, you're going to see that God promises this kingdom would last forever. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So when we get into Matthew and we read Jesus being described as the son of David, we need to remember this that God had promised a king who would last forever. And are you noticing that the, the further along that we move in the history of redemption, the more clear the hints are getting? The more obvious the pointers become. As God, we call this progressive revelation, it starts small and somewhat hidden. And as time moves on, God reveals more and more and more of his plan to his people. Progressive revelation. There was a mystery hidden in God for long ages, Paul would say. And he's working up to the point when he will reveal that mystery, namely Christ. So the last place we're going to stop is in the minor prophets. The people need a savior. They need a prophet who will speak the word of God. They need a king who will act righteously and do for them what no human king can do. And lastly, I want to show you that they needed a priest. Someone who would offer true and acceptable sacrifices to God. So turn to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2 starting in verse 4. And I'm going to read this text, and this is going to show us exactly what's going on, and it's going to explain the need that the people of God had for a greater priest. So this is Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 4. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi might stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. <clears throat> he walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. From the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So do you see the problem there? What is the issue that is being pointed out here? It is the failure of the priests. They had failed to keep the covenant that God had established when the priesthood was first formed. It says right in the text that priests should offer true instruction. <clears throat> Implication, they should not offer false instruction. But what was happening? For those of you that were here last spring, we saw this from Malachi. The priests were allowing all sorts of inappropriate behavior, not only in worship, which is primary, but also in the covenant community. So in worship, they were allowing people to bring in substandard sacrifices. They were bringing in blemished goats 
and lame animals, dirty, spotted, impure things, and offering them to the Lord. And the priests, who should have said, no way, Jose, you are not bringing that thing in here, they said, bring it on in. It's fine. Anything goes. They were corrupting the sacrifice. And in the covenant community, they were allowing marriage to foreign women and then giving certificates of divorce so that people could feel justified in their marriage of foreign women going directly against what God had commanded. It was a mess. So God comes in and says, you have turned aside from the way that I have instructed you to go. The implication here is that the nation of Israel, God's people, need a better priest. They need someone who is not going to put up with substandard sacrifice. They need someone who's going to speak true instruction to the people of God and who will offer a sacrifice that is actually pleasing to the Lord. That's what they need. But the priests were not doing that. And with each step forward in redemptive history, we see the need for and the longing for a Messiah, a Deliverer, grow and grow and grow. All the way through, God has been giving hints and promises that say, one day there is coming someone who is going to right every wrong. And so every time someone arises as a leader, as a hero, the people kind of, oh, and they're let down. Because no human can satisfy God except what we read in the opening pages of Matthew. So, the people are in need of a savior. They're in need of a prophet, a king, and a priest. Now, when we come to the end of the book of Malachi... In our Bibles, it just goes right to Matthew, right? You can turn the page and be there. But in actuality, there is a period of 400 years between the close of the Old Testament, the close of Malachi, and the opening of Matthew's gospel. So what's going on with that? What happens in that called the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What is going on? Has God just taken an, like an extended vacation? Is he just kind of letting things play out? Absolutely not. God is never still. He is never not doing something. I know that's not proper grammar, but you know what I mean. He is always active. And the same is true in this intertestamental period. And while there is canonical silence, meaning there are no inspired or authorized books that are added to Scripture during this period, God is not silent. He is working. He is moving. He is moving the history of redemption forward until the fullness of time had come. So I want to share just a few things that happened in this 400 years to help us understand that the anticipation and the longing for the coming of the Messiah did not quit at Malachi and lay dormant for 400 years and then all of a sudden, boom, we're back to the New Testament. But all along, the longing for the Messiah was building and growing. If you guys ever worked with hot water or steam pressure and you watch the gauge and it just goes and it goes and it goes as the pressure builds, that's what's happening in the world. 
as there's this anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. So let's just talk about a few things that happened, and then I'll close by telling you why this is significant that we know. When we left off in Malachi, <clears throat> excuse me, the temple had been completed. So under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, Shealtiel, some of these other guys who are working around there, the temple is rebuilt, reconstructed. Now this happens in part because Cyrus, the king of Persia, allows it to happen. Persia is the governing authority over God's people at this time. They had recently defeated Babylon. Remember the exile that God's people had been hauled off to Babylon? Well, Persia comes in, conquers Babylon, and goes, what do we need with all these exiles? Send them back to their own homeland. So that's what happens. And under Persian rule, <clears throat> excuse me, Cyrus allows the temple to be rebuilt. In fact, he even gives gifts to the people that they are allowed to rebuild with gold and silver and all kinds of things. So the temple is rebuilt and the people of God experience relative religious freedom for the time. Okay? Now, during this period, the people of God, sometimes they have tremendous freedom to practice and to worship and sometimes it is very restricted. So as we move forward... In redemptive history, we see Alexander the Great come to power in the 300s B.C. And in 331 B.C., he conquers Persia. Which means, and maybe you know this from history, Alexander's goal was to spread Hellenism, which is the word for Greek culture. Heavy on philosophy, on polytheism, many gods, many temples, all this stuff. His purpose in all of this military conquest that Alexander the Great participated in was to spread the Hellenistic life, the Greek life throughout all of the known world. So he conquers Persia, he takes over, and so the people are no longer under Persian rule, but now under Greek rule. And they are forced to live a Hellenistic life, that is a Greek life. Well, we know Alexander's rule doesn't last that long, and over the next 200 years or so, there is a constant power struggle, and it ebbs and it flows, and it rises and it falls, but the people of God are always subject to somebody. There's always some governing authority giving them more or less religious freedom to worship as they want to. In 175 B.C., a man named Antiochus Epiphanes comes to power, and he is wicked on a whole new level. The word epiphany that we use, you know what epiphany means? Like, I had an epiphany, like an idea, a manifestation, a revelation, something like that. His, that's, it came from his name, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he considered himself to be the manifestation of God. And he believed that everything he said, he said as God. And he hated the Jewish people. So what he does is he makes it a capital offense to be a Jew. So if you owned any portion of the Torah, the law, the, the Bible, you were put to death. If you circumcised your sons, you were put to death. If you observed the Sabbath, you were put to death. Basically, every major tenant of the Jewish faith was punishable by death. And then, a few years later, in 167 B.C., he does the most abominable thing he could possibly do, marches into the Jewish temple and sacrifices a pig on the altar. 
you know anything about Jewish culture and the history and the sacrificial system, bringing an unclean animal, especially a pig, and sacrificing there, he was thumbing his nose at the Jewish God and at the Jewish people. So for many years, the Jewish people live under the oppressive maniac, Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, finally, they are fed up, and they've had enough. And under the leadership of someone named Mattathias Maccabeus, you've heard of the Maccabean Revolt, this is it, he leads the people to fight against the government and says, enough is enough. Well, eventually he dies, and the leadership of the Maccabeans turns to his third son, Judas Maccabeus, whose name means the hammer. Wouldn't it be great if your name meant the hammer? <laughs> That'd be awesome. And he lives up to his name. So he is so effective in this sort of guerrilla warfare against the government that they are forced to cry uncle. And they say, okay, we'll make some concessions. What do you want? And so Judas Maccabeus makes it so that the people of God can worship as Jewish people once again. The temple, in fact, is reopened under his leadership, which is still celebrated today. They call it Hanukkah. That celebrates the time when Judas Maccabeus forced the government to say, open the temple and give us religious freedom. Really interesting stuff. So, from about 142 all the way down to the 60s BC, the people of God experience relative religious freedom. They are allowed to worship, they are allowed to go into the temple, and then around 64, 63 BC, here comes Rome. And once again, the people of God are conquered by the Romans. And this is the system of government that we see set up as we begin the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the reason that I wanted to mention a few of these things is because what happens between Malachi and Matthew, while not authoritative in the sense that we include it in our Bible, nonetheless helps us to understand that the, the trajectory of longing, that's what I'm calling it, the trajectory of longing continues all the way through that 400 years, so that when we open the page of Matthew 1 and we read that it is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and we start to make all these connections back to what God has promised and to what God has done, we see what happens in redemptive history. We should have our confidence boosted because we see that God was faithful to his word. He did everything that he promised to do. And the political and military workings of human governments will not... <clears throat> Test one, two. The workings of human government will not stop the plan of God. Period. And I want you to know this. Because we can trust that as God was faithful from Genesis 1-1 all the way up to the door of Matthew's gospel, he will be faithful from Matthew 1-1 all the way through the end of this world. He is a faithful God. And what an encouragement for us to see that with all the risings and fallings and risings and fallings and all the anticipation and the disappointment and the failure, God is faithful. His plan does not fail. It cannot fail because it is his plan. Now, there were many people who arose acting as messiahs. 
many false messiahs, people who just wanted the political or military freedom. See, the people of God had gotten things mixed up. They thought that the deliverance coming was a political deliverance, a military deliverance. That's why we see them acting the way we do when we get into the Gospels, because all of this history of political oppression. And so when they hear Savior, what they hear is, great, get rid of the taxes, get rid of Rome, get rid of this oppression that we've been living under for so long. But what God is saying when he says Messiah is deliverance from sin. So when we come now to this wonderful account of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Matthew, remember, this is all according to plan. Everything we are seeing in the Scriptures, it was no accident. What does it mean that it was the fullness of time? It means that it was according to God's plan. All other attempts to rescue or deliver God's people, to free them from oppression, failed because they were not God's plan. But when the fullness of time had come, when everything was perfect, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That's us. Isn't that amazing? And all throughout redemptive history, we see this this mystery being revealed a little bit more and a little bit more. And eventually, at the coming of Christ, the mystery is made known. So I'm going to close by reading from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. You don't have to turn here, just listen. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 7. In Christ, we have redemption Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. God, what a blessing that we can look back, that you you have provided for us the scriptures. What a precious gift your word is. And as we have looked back today and we've seen you promise and foreshadow and prefigure the coming of the Messiah, God, I pray that we would also have this anticipation now as we come to the Gospel of Matthew. That as we have the privilege of reading these first-hand accounts of Jesus' birth and his life and his ministry and his miracles and his temptation and his deliverance and healing and all the things that he did, I pray that our hearts would be drawn to him. It doesn't matter if I can say things in a a snappy way or a rememberable way. God, what matters is that we know Christ. And so I praise you for this plan of redemption. I praise you that from the beginning, yes, even before the beginning, the plan was in place that your son, Jesus Christ, would come in the fullness of time. And we praise you, God, that nothing 
stops your plan. Nothing thwarts your will. You will always accomplish what you set out to do. So God, as we begin this journey to understand Jesus more, would you help us to trust you more, to love you more? It's not, it's not enough just to know the right things. We want to love what we know. So God, please do it. Please remind us that because you have been faithful in the past to keep your word. You will be faithful in the future. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your steadfast love, and I pray that each one of us would trust you more because of the way you've revealed yourself. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.